Good morning, everybody. What a a great tune. It's all about Him. It's all about Him all the time, right? It's a great day to be here, isn't it? He is risen. Did you forget what we talked about last week, how this is supposed to work? He is risen. Well, good. That's not something we just celebrate on Easter Sunday, the fact that Jesus has risen from the grave. That's something we celebrate every Sunday, right? That's why we get together on Sunday and not Saturday or Friday or Thursday. We get together on Sunday because He is risen, and we celebrate that every week here, and we should celebrate it every day in our lives. It makes all the difference in the world, right? We talked about that last week. We talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and how we see the historicity of the resurrection, that it really did happen. And then we went to Ephesians chapter 2 and talked about the implications of that resurrection, that it really does make a difference. In fact, it really does make all the difference in the world, right? And we want to believe that, and we want to know that, and we want to proclaim that to the world, that Christ has risen, and there is therefore reconciliation between God and man by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's good news. That is good news, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins and have been made, made alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. That's good, good news, right? And so we took a little break last week from our study of Joshua, and we went to 1 Corinthians, and we went to Ephesians. This week, we're going to go back to Joshua. So do you have your Bible? Good. You always need it, right? Always. Not a, not a week is going to go by that someone is not going to say, take your Bible and turn to a passage, right? It's not going to happen. We're not going to get up here and, and, and do a show. We're not going to get up here and have a talk apart from the Scriptures. We preach the Word of God here, right? You should bring your Bible. If you don't have one, we've got one for you. It's in a pew rack right in front of you. In fact, if you don't have one at all, consider that one yours. Take it home with you. Enjoy it. Love it. Read it. Let it change your life. We need to turn to Joshua chapter 15. Last week, we talked about the resurrection. The week before that, Joe preached from Joshua chapter 14. I want to remind you in our study of Joshua that we have moved into the second part of this book, which is very tedious, and some people would say boring. Uh, I'm going to caution you against that today to say that these things are not boring. This is a revelation of God uh, to us. He has revealed himself in all of his word, and the Bible tells us in the New Testament that it's all profitable to us, right? We're not going to read the scriptures and it not profit us. It is good for us to read the scriptures, even parts that we would like to skip over. So we want to uh, talk a little bit about the importance of exposition, that we move straight through the scriptures, that we see passages like this. Because honestly, if we were just doing topical messages, we would never talk about Joshua chapter 14. We would never talk about Joshua chapter 15. We would never talk about Joshua chapter 16. In fact, we wouldn't pick it up again until 23 if we were just doing topical preaching. But we have been given all of this scripture, and we need to study it all. Amen? You better be on board because it's going to be a rough eight weeks from here on out if you're not. All right? It is important that we understand it. It's going to be tedious for the next several weeks. God has inspired it all for us, though, and we should come to it expecting that he will speak to us. One commentator said of Joshua chapter 15, he says, Joshua chapter 15 must be profitable. Based on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Joshua 15 must be profitable, and it must be so just as it is, without any spiritualizing additives. That's good. 
It's good that he says that, that it's profitable to us just like it is. We don't have to spice it up. We don't have to add something to it. The word of God is profitable to us just like it is. And so that's the goal today is to lay it out, to explain it and let it do its thing. And it will be profitable to you. You're going to see some neat stuff in the detailed instruction of the inheritance, the division of the land that is given to Judah. So check it out in Joshua chapter 15. And you're going to have to stick with me. It's going to take us a long time to read it. And there are a lot of tough words. Good words. Tough words, though. Okay? You there? You ready? Let's go. Now, the lot for the tribe of the sons of Judah, according to their families, reached the border of Edom, southward to the wilderness of Zin at the extreme south. Their south border was from the lower end of the Salt Sea, from the bay that turns to the south. Then it proceeded southward to the ascent of Akrabim and and continued to Zin, then went up by the south of Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea is a very important place, right? A very important place where some very important things went wrong. And so when Kadesh Barnea is mentioned, that should get your attention. It certainly would have got Joshua's attention. certainly would have got Caleb's attention. It says, went up by the south of Kadesh Barnea and continued to Hezron and went up to Adar and turned about Karka. It continued to Asmon and proceeded to the brook of Egypt and the border ended at the sea. This shall be your south border. The east border was the Salt Sea as far as the mouth of the Jordan and the border of the north side was from the bay of the sea at the mouth of the Jordan. Then the border went up to Beth Hagla. And continued on the north of Beth Arabah, and the border went up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. The border went up to Debir from the valley of Achor and turned northward toward Gilgal, which is opposite the ascent of Adumim, which is on the south of the valley. And the border continued to the waters of Enshemesh, and it ended at Enrogel. Then the border went up the valley of Beth Hinnom to the slope of the Jebusite on the south, that is Jerusalem. That should get your attention too, right? In the midst of all of these names, a few of them are familiar to us, right? And they are familiar to us for good reason. And so as we're reading through this, we should take special note of those names. He says, to the slope of the Jebusite on the south, that is Jerusalem. And the border went up to the top of the mountain, which is before the valley of Hinnom, to the west, which is at the end of the valley of Rephaim, toward the north. From the top of the mountain, the border curved. You're going to see this border starts curving all over the place. The border curved to the spring of the waters at Nephtoah and proceeded to the cities of Mount Ephron. Then the border curved toward Bela, that is Kiriath-Jerim. The border turned from, the, from Bela westward to Mount Seir and continued to the slope of Mount Jerim uh, to the north, that is Kesselon. And went down to Beth Shemesh and continued through Timnah. The border proceeded to the side of Ekron northward. Then the border curved to Sikaron and continued to Mount Bela and proceeded to Jebneel. The border ended at the sea. The west border was the Great Sea, even its coastline. This is the border around the sons of Judah, according to their families. Look up. Take a breath. We're halfway there. Now, not even halfway, sorry. Now he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephnuah, a portion among the sons of Judah, according to the command of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron. That should be familiar to you if you were here two weeks ago. Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ahaman, and Talmai, the children of Anak. 
Then he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-Sephir. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriath-Sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksha, my daughter, as his wife. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it. So he gave him Aksha, his daughter, as a wife. It came about that when she came to him, she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. So she alighted from the donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? Then she said, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negeb, give me also the springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the sons of Judah, according to their families. That's who we're talking about, Judah. Verse 21 says, Now the cities at the extremity of the tribe of the sons of Judah, toward the border of Edom in the south were Kez. Kabzeel, and Eder, and Jagger, and Kenah, and Dimonah, and Adada, and Kadesh, and Hazor, and Ithnan, and Ziph, and Telem, and Bealoth, and Hazor Hadata, and Kirioth Hezron, that is Hazor, Amam, and Shema, and Melodah, and Hazar Gadah, and Heshmon, and Beth Kalet, and Hazar Shual, and Beersheba, and Biziothiah, and Allah, and Eam, and Ezem, and Itilad, and Chesel, and Horma, and Ziklag. That's a good one. And Madmana, and Susanna. Oh, Sazanna. And Leboth, and Shilhim, and Ayan, and Rimon, and all. 29 cities with their villages. Did you count them? If you count them, there aren't 29. The numbers are off here, and uh, it's hard to explain why. It says in verse 33, In the lowland, Eshtaol, and Zorah, and Ashna, and Zenoah, and Enganim, and Tapua, and Enam, and Jarmuth, and Adalam, Soko, and Ezekah, and Sharaim, and Adathaim, and Gedarah, and Gedarothaim, 14 cities with their villages, Zenan, and Hedashah, and Migdalgad, and Dilian, and Mizpah, and Jokthiel, Lachish, and Bazkath, and Eglon, and Cabon, and Lamas, and Kitlish, and Gedaroth, Beth, Beth Dagon, Nama, Mekeda, 16 cities in their villages. Laura, are you listening? There's got to be a name in there, right? Anybody remember where we are? 42. Libna, and Ether, and Ashen, and Iptha, and Hashanash, Ashna, and Nezib, and Kelah, and Akzib, and Merashah, nine cities with their villages, Ekron with its towns and its villages, from Ekron even to the sea, all that were by the side of Ashdod and their villages, Ashdod, its towns and its villages, Gaza and its towns and its villages, as far as the brook of Egypt and the great sea, even its coastline. In the hill country, Shamir and Jatir and Soko and Dana and Kiriath-Sana, that is Debir, and Anab and Eshtemo and Anim and Goshen and Holon and Gilo, 11 cities with their villages, Arab and Duma and Eshen and Janum and Beth Tapua and Ephica and Humta 
and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, and Zior, nine cities with their villages, Maon, Carmel, and Ziph, and Judah, and Jezreel, and Joktim, and Zeno, and Cain, and Gibeah, and Timnah, ten cities with their villages, Hal Halhul, uh, Beth Zur, and Geder, and Maroth, and Beth Anoth, and El Eltakan. Six cities with their villages, Kiriath Baal, that is Kiriath Jerim, and Rabbah, uh, two cities with their villages. In the wilderness, Beth Arabah, Midden, and Sekakah, and Nishban, and the cities of Salt, and Engedi, cities with their, six cities with their villages. Now, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out, so the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for all of this that we have seen because we realize that all of it is a testimony of your greatness. In fact, more than a testimony, it is a revelation of your greatness. You are speaking to us through your word so that we may know you, so that we may know ourselves rightly in light of who you are, so that we may respond in humbleness, in faith, in repentance, in obedience to you. God, I pray. that we will not be so arrogant as to stand as a judge of your word today and say this is unimportant, this is too much, this is boring, I don't need this. God, I pray that we will see this is exactly what we need today. It is exactly what we need today for our souls, for our lives. It is exactly what we need today for this church. God, help us to understand Help us to follow. Help us to believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Everybody's head came up. Three things, three big lessons we want to see in this text today. A couple of them come from kind of a far look at it. We're going to, we're going to kind of hold it way back and look at this chapter as a whole. And one of them comes from a pretty close look at this chapter. I want you to turn from here, from Joshua chapter 15, back to Genesis chapter 12. The first point that I want you to see is that these details are glorious. These details are the fulfillment of God's promises to his people from long, long ago. These details are fantastic. They are not boring. They are not tiring. They are fantastic because God is fulfilling his promise to his people. Genesis chapter 12 is where you need to go first. Chapter 12, starting in verse 6. This is God speaking to Abram as he's calling him out to, uh, out of Ur of the Chaldees, making promises to him, making a covenant with him. In chapter 12, verse 6, God says this. It says, Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moray. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. That's who we've been running out of the land for the last couple months, right? We've got the Canaanites out of the land. Now the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So God brings him into this land and he says, I'm going to give all of this. Where the Canaanites live, I'm going to give all of it to your descendants. And what we see there in Genesis chapter 12, that's the 12th chapter of the whole Bible. That's the beginning of it, right? This is the beginning of, of God's people. This is the beginning of the formation of God's people. And he says, I'm going to give you this land. And then we fast forward to Joshua chapter 15 and he's giving it to them. He's doing it. He's fulfilling his promise. He is completing his word that he spoke to Abraham. Turn over to chapter 15 of Genesis. One, one page or two over. 
Start in verse 7 and listen to the promise that God makes to him. Chapter 15, verse 7, it says, He, that is God, said to him, that is Abram, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, Oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, no, no, for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, but... I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt. Do you hear that? From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadamonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. He says, this is the land I'm giving to you. So in chapter 12, he said, I'm going to give it to you. He made a promise to him. In chapter 15, he goes through this whole elaborate ceremony to say, I mean it. I mean it, Abram. He cuts these, cuts these animals in half and lays them in half, and then God passes between them, basically saying, I promise you on my own life that I will do this thing. I will give you this land. It will be yours. And then did you notice he outlines where it is? Some of that stuff came up in the text that we read in Joshua chapter 15, especially the great river of Egypt. We saw that, right? We saw that in the text as God is outlining what the borders are going to be. God's fulfilling his promise. He made a promise and it is wonderful and it is glorious. And the details of chapter 15 are also glorious. But we don't usually appreciate those kind of details, do we? We prefer when God shows up and he parts the waters, right? We dig that. that. That is good. And we get excited about God coming in and parting the water so his people can pass on the dry ground. We get excited when God casts down hailstones out of heaven and destroys his enemy. We like all the bells and whistles. We like all the big stuff. We like the action. And we don't so much like the details. But what I want to tell you is that most of your life and your walk with God in Jesus Christ is not about bells and whistles. It's about the little ordinary details of your life. And we need to learn to appreciate him in the ordinary details of our lives. I don't think any of us have a problem praising God when he shows up and performs a miracle in our lives, do we? We all get that. We all get that and we praise him. If we are sick and we are made well, we say glory be to God. My question is, what do you say on an ordinary day? What do you say on an ordinary day when it's just business as usual? How many of you had one of those weekends this weekend? It was unremarkable. It was just a plain old ordinary weekend. How many of you had that kind of weekend this weekend? That's okay. Most of you should. Most of you didn't have an outstanding weekend. Most of you had an average ordinary weekend. And we should be able to look at those average ordinary days and say, oh, God, thank you. How many of you mowed your grass this weekend? That's good, right? It's good to mow grass. It's good to have grass to mow, right? It's good that grass grows, right? 
It's good that you've got something to mow it with. It's good that you're well enough to mow it. Where did all that come from? You and your hard work? You and your intelligence? You and your goodness? Oh, it's a gift from God. I was reading one commentator that said, this is what my day looked like yesterday. He said, I got up in the morning and I had breakfast with my family. Unremarkable. Except for the fact that God had provided food and God had given me this family to fellowship with. He said, then... I had to take the trash out. It's pretty unremarkable, right? And sometimes frustrating, right? You know where trash comes from? God. It's the leftovers of what he's given you. He said, so I took the trash out and I said, God, thank you that I have something and there's leftovers that I've got to take to the trash. And he said, then I went to work and I got stuck at a red light and I was there for a long time and I was angry and mad. And then I realized I've got a job that I'm going to and I've got a car that I'm going in And I'm well enough to do it all. And it's all a gift from God. What I want to tell you is that this text is tedious. It is detailed. And that's the way most of our life is, right? Life doesn't consist of these big, giant events, does it? Those come along once in a while. But most of it is just day-to-day, average, ordinary stuff. And we've got to learn to see God in those things. We see God here fulfilling His promise. And when your day goes, whether it goes well or it goes poorly, you need to see that God is fulfilling His promise to you. He said, I'll be with you all the time. He said, I'll take care of you like my child because that's what you are. We need to see all of our lives as a fulfillment of God's promise to us, right? Not just the big stuff. See Him in even the little stuff. And by the way, this text is not boring because this text comes to bear for us in Christ tribe of Judah. That's kind of important, right? All of this is paving the way. All of this is setting the stage for Jesus, the Messiah, to come to the earth to die for our sins, right? All of this is setting the stage for that. God knew that was coming. In fact, that was the plan from even before this was written. The plan was to send the Messiah into the world, and this is setting the stage for it. And so you should be a little bit excited about this. Because Judah has a land. Judah has a land and Jesus is coming, right? Okay, number one. The details in this text are glorious because they are details of God's promises. Number two, Caleb. Caleb is the man, right? Joe talked about Caleb, not his Caleb. He's not the man. I saw you smile when I said that a minute ago. Joe talked about Caleb and talked about Caleb's boldness to ask for a specific land. He said, I want that one. I want that land. Over there where the the descendants of Anak live, that's what I want. That's what I want. And there was this great faith and this great boldness to ask for something like that. And I don't know how much Joe talked about it. I haven't got to listen to it yet, but surely he talked about how the descendants of Anak are giants. The very same giants that Joshua and Caleb and the other spies saw when they went to the promised land. The very same giants that because of them, ten of the spies came back and said, We can't go there. We can't go there. They, are, they will make us seem like grasshoppers. They're so big. And there's no way we can take that land because of Anak. Joshua and Caleb said, We've got it because our God is with us. If our God is with us, who could possibly stop us? I'm not worried about the descendants of Anak. But because of the other ten... At Kadesh Barnea, they don't go to the land for 40 years. They wander in the desert. And then when they do get to go to the land, Joshua, who's an old man at this point, says, you know which part I want? 
I want where the giants are. Those giants that scared everybody else, you give me that land. I'll take care of those giants. Don't you love that kind of faith? And he talked about it in chapter 14. Talked about it. He said, I want that land. That's what I want. In chapter 15, he goes and gets it. He doesn't just talk about faithfulness. He lives out his faithfulness. And we need to be like Joshua. Look what it says uh, in the text. He follows through. It says, verse 13, Now he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah, according to the command of the Lord, to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron. Caleb, listen to this, Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ahaman, and Telmai, the children of Anak. Joshua's an old man, and he goes and takes that, that town. He goes and drives out the giants that were in that place. He drives them out. Then look what happens after this. It says, Then he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-Sephir. And Caleb said, remember Caleb's an old man at this point, he said, The one who attacks Kiriath-Sephir and captures it, I will give him Akhnash, my daughter, as a wife. He's already pushed out the, the three big sons of Anak, already got rid of them, and they're going to take the next town that he's going to possess. And he says, I'm, I'm old. Essentially, he says, I'm old, and I can't do it. Whoever does it, whoever does it for me, I'll give him my daughter as his wife. And one guy steps up, and he says, I'm in. And I don't know if it was because he was a fierce warrior, or because he was ready and bold, or because he really liked Caleb's daughter. But he goes, and he takes that land, and he gets Caleb's daughter as his wife as a reward. So they are, they are doing they are doing what God had called them to do. They are doing what Caleb said, we will do. Give us the land. We will drive them out. They are doing it. They are following through with their faith. And then they are rewarded for it, right? Because they are given that land. And in fact, if you read it, Caleb's daughter is pretty, pretty smart. She's pretty smart because she says, Dad, you gave us this land, and that's great. Why don't you give us these two springs as well? Why don't you give me these two springs as well? Because part of the land that, that, that they were given is in the Negev, which is a very dry and desolate place. But there are a couple of springs around. And so Joshua's daughter said, give us the springs as well. And what happens when she gets those springs is she's able to develop, with the help of some people, an irrigation system that is going to bring life and fruitfulness to the Negev. This is cool. Because Joshua, because Caleb is following through with his faith. Caleb is following through his talk with action. And Jesus did the same thing, did he not? Jesus did the same thing. He talked a lot about his crucifixion and his resurrection before it happened, didn't he? He talked a lot about it. He says, I'm going to lay my life down and I'm going to take it up again. He talks a little bit of trash with the leaders. He says, you don't have any power over me. Who, who do you think you are? You don't have any power over me. The only authority you have has been given to the Father, given by the Father. He says, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. He talks about it a ton. What would that talk mean if he hadn't actually died and risen again? Nothing. Nothing, right? If he had just talked about it and said, oh, this is what I want, and we would say, oh, what faithfulness he has, because he says these things. That faithfulness means nothing if it's only speech. It's got to be accompanied by action. And I think the church needs to hear that today as well. We do a good job of saying all the right stuff. We do a good job of talking about strong faith. We do a good job of talking about a relationship with God. We do a poor job of following through following through and actually living it out. A lot of us will say, yeah, give me Anak. 
Give me that land. Give me the land of the giants. I will go in and I will take it. Very few of us will actually go in and take it. A lot of us will talk about following Jesus. Very few of us will actually follow Jesus. And I would put before you that what matters most is what you do, not what you say. A lot of people say a lot of things. What matters most is what you do, how you follow. Joshua, Caleb followed. They lived it out. They didn't just talk about faith. They lived it out. And I'm thankful for that. And I want to be like them. The last application is this. Last point in this text is about the tangibility of God's blessing. In this text, God is outlining with very specific detail the land that would be actually physically theirs. And what I want you to hear is that the Christian life is not just about ideas or opinions or emotions. The Christian life is not about these things necessarily. It's not all about these things that exist in the abstract. Christian life is not all about these things that exist in the abstract. The Christian life is also about things that exist in the concrete, in the tangible. That's what we were talking about earlier on when we said, how was your day yesterday? Was it unremarkable? No, it was remarkable. Because in all of those things, we touch, we taste, we see God as he reveals himself to us, right? The reality is that the Christian life is more than just this kind of spiritual, mystical, abstract deal. It is also physical and tangible. In fact, I'll show you an example in Jesus' life. Look at John chapter 1. Turn over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This is a passage you're familiar with. Again, we're talking about kind of the the two layers of Christian living. One is ideas and opinions and emotions and abstractions and beliefs. And the other is real, concrete, tangible. Look what it says in John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's abstract, is it not? That's abstract even in the language, isn't it? Why does he refer to Jesus as the Word? This is an idea, right? This is, this is a truth that is somewhat abstract. And I'm thankful that it doesn't end there. I'm thankful that, that John doesn't just say to us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Period. End of John. Aren't you glad there's more? Look at verse 14 and listen to the tangible, incarnational truth that is here. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's good, right? That that it's not just this abstraction. It's not this philosophy. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he became flesh. He came to us, and he dwelt among us, and we saw him. In fact, John for the rest of that gospel, talks about what he saw, what he heard, what he touched, what he experienced. It is real. It is real. And I want you to know that that's the way our Christian lives work as well. Some of it is theology and abstraction and things that we can't quite grasp. We understand and we feel and we get them, but we can't quite touch them. And then there's this other side where we we do feel and we do experience and we do touch and we taste and we smell. And we don't want to separate those two too much because they really work together, do they not? They really work together. And we need to experience the whole works of the Christian life. 
Some of you are caught in just abstraction. You've never really experienced Christ at all in your life. You may have some right understanding. You may have some right grasp on some things, but you haven't really experienced Christ at all in your life. And then there are others of you who think you're experiencing Christ, but you don't know anything about him. You don't anything about him. You don't, you don't know anything about theology. You don't know anything about the gospel. You don't know anything. But you feel. I'm telling you, we need both of those things, right? I want to know and understand and grasp and get it. And I want to feel it and experience it and love it. The more I understand it, the more I love it. The more I love it, the more I understand it. That's the way it's supposed to work, right? Both of these things going up and up and up. The Christian life is about more than just abstraction. It's about concrete experience. It's not about less than abstraction, though. It's not about less than the message. It's not about less than the truth. What we see in Joshua chapter 15 is concrete evidence of God's faithfulness. God said, I will give you a land, and then he outlines that land for Judah. Did you catch how detailed that was? From this point to this point. At one point, he mentions a rock, a very specific rock. He says the, 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 the border is going to curve from this point to this rock, this one specific rock. You know how many rocks there are in this area? A lot of rocks. It's all rocks, in fact. And he says, I'm going to go from this one point to this rock, this certain specific rock. It is so detailed. And he says, this is the land that Judah gets. Judah, this is yours. It will be yours. It's concrete. They can hold on to it. No longer do they just say, yeah, God promised to give us this land. See all this? God promised to give us this. Now they can say, see that rock? That's our rock because God has given it to us. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for those moments in life when we can hold on to God's promises, where we can touch them, we can taste them, we can feel them. That's good, right? That's good. Three applications, and then we're done. Number one, the faithfulness of God is not boring. That's what chapter 15 is about. It's about his faithfulness, and the faithfulness of God is not boring. It is amazing. We should see it. We should be grateful, and we should follow him. We should see it and be grateful and follow him all the time, even in the minute details of our day. Number two, faith without works is dead. God says that. Talking, talking about stuff is nothing. Live it out. Joshua doesn't just say, yeah, I'll take, I'll take Anak. I'll take the giants. He goes and gets the giants. He follows through, and he lives it out, and we should as well. And then the last application is about the tangibility of God's blessings, the reality, the physical reality of God's blessings. And if you've got one of those today, cherish it, love it, hold on to it, and praise him for it, Right? Let's stand together and pray. God, thank you for your faithfulness. It is not boring. It is not tedious. It is glorious and wonderful. Thank you for your faithfulness that is ultimately displayed in Christ, who dies on the cross for our sins and is buried and is raised the third day. Thank you for your faithfulness to your promises. Thank you for the fulfillment of your promises in the Old Testament. Thank you for the fulfillment of your promises that are to come at Christ's return. We trust you completely. And we thank you that you've shown us so much. God, help us not to treat your faithfulness as if it is boring. Help us to treat your faithfulness as not as if it is meaningless or insignificant. Help us to see it all the time. And help us to respond rightly to it in repentance and faith. Help us to respond with obedience and passion for you. God, help us. In Christ's name, amen.